There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Lockdown measures are cautiously being lifted in some countries. Governments hope economies can start moving again. But which one will have the strongest recovery? Hello. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbog, The Economist's finance editor. And coming up on today's show, Uber has confirmed it's gobbling up food delivery rival Postmates. Will this help it take out the competition? gives Uber Eats just under a third market share in the US. But of course, Postmates isn't profitable either. And the importance of building a more resilient food chain. How do we have distributed supply chains that will A, help us be resilient towards any other pandemic, but actually resilient supply chains for climate change is also about diversification. First, after plunging in the first half of the year, economic activity in the rich world is starting to resume. Some countries might bounce back relatively quickly, but for others it will take a lot longer to recover from the catastrophic effects of the pandemic. What will shape the speed of the recovery across various economies? At the moment it's not possible to say with absolute certainty which countries have done relatively well and which countries have done relatively badly. The GDP data won't be published for some time, but there is emerging evidence of you know, which countries are the laggards and which are the outperformers. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. The two ways of doing that is thinking really about industrial structure. So, you know, how are different economies across the rich world shaped? And there are some countries which have, for instance, uh, you know, highly dependent on tourism, which have done worse, and some countries which are more dependent on manufacturing, which have done, appear to have done relatively better. The second factor is to do with this sort of the strength and the duration of the lockdown. And there's been a bunch of research which has found kind of remarkably close relationships between quantitative measures of lockdown severity and high frequency indicators of economic output. And there's very, very wide variation, both in the strength and duration of of lockdowns. The country that's had the strongest and longest lockdown is Italy. And there are many others that have had significantly lighter lockdowns. So I would strongly expect to see that when the GDP data are finally published, they will show that those countries, such as Italy and Spain and the UK, have suffered much, much worse during the past few months. And of course, as lockdowns are lifted, you would expect some kind of bounce back in GDP just because activity is starting to resume. What are the sort of general rules you think for the recovery? What should we expect in terms of how quickly we go back to pre-pandemic times, what the shape of the recovery might be? So if we're thinking about the rich world as a whole, the IMF expects the level of GDP, pre-pandemic GDP, to be reached sometime after 2021, so some time away. But as you say, there will be really quite wide variation in when different countries manage to get back to where they started. Obviously, the first factor to bear in mind is kind of where they're starting from. I think the second question really is, 
how quickly firms and households will feel comfortable about kind of assuming the behaviours that they were used to before February and March. And again, there appears to be really quite wide variation in how people are responding. So for instance, if you look at countries like Norway, Denmark, Switzerland to a lesser extent, things have kind of gone back to quite close to normal if you look at very, very high frequency mobility data, for instance. But if you then look at other countries, in particular Spain and also the UK, although lockdowns are now being eased, there's actually only a very slow recovery in people going to restaurants and transit stations and workplaces. So there's very wide variation between countries. Callum, you've been looking at the sort of high frequency data quite closely and it isn't a sort of linear recovery, is it? I mean, some places have started to see a recovery either sort of plateau or or start to sort of reverse. What affects that? Yeah, this is the other thing. And I think this is something that is probably true for all countries, although, although this is slightly harder to see. But I think wherever you look, the recovery is pretty fragile and is prone to kind of going into reverse again. So for instance, if you look at what's happened to restaurant reservations in Australia in the past few days, having recovered pretty strongly during most of June and some of May, in the past few days, they've appeared to have fallen pretty sharply again. And that is almost certainly linked in some way to what's going on in Victoria and Melbourne in particular. I think also if you look at the data on credit card spending in the US, there's one measure of credit card spending which peaked about June the 21st and since then has either tailed off or has actually fallen back again. And this, of course, is linked to what's going on in places like Florida and Arizona. So I don't think there are any countries where you can say that the recovery is on a very solid footing. And people seem to like to refer to various letters of the alphabet when they talk about the recovery, V, U, W, and so on. What do you think is the most likely outcome? I'm putting you on the spot here. For the rich world as a whole, I think, you know, there probably is a kind of V shape, but it might not be the sort of steepness of the V on the way up is probably not going to be as steep as the bit of the V on the way down. I mean, having said that, there are some countries where the bounce back is pretty quick. I mean, there's one in particular, which is South Korea, which, as we all know, has dealt with this virus so far extremely well. And it is possible, although not by no means guaranteed, that South Korea will actually avoid a recession entirely. Korean households have received this rather like large fiscal stimulus from the government. And the, the evidence so far suggests they've already spent the vast majority of it, even though they were only given it a few weeks ago. And that, of course, is helping to support the economy. Uh, As I say, there are other countries where the recovery will look pretty V-shaped. Norway, Sweden also. um, Surprisingly enough, the economy is, is holding up better than people had expected. Denmark and really much of Northern Europe. I think, though, when you think of the countries that have, in epidemiological terms, have been hit extremely hard by this, so Spain, Italy, the UK, the US, perhaps not an L shape. Uh, to go back to the shapes, but certainly not a sort of back up as, as fast as we went down. So it's not clear that the global economy is out of the woods yet. Do you think a double dip recession might be a concern for some countries, at least? For some countries, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in particular for those places which kind of thought they were through it and now aren't. I mean, Australia, uh, you know, in particular is one country that we would be concerned about, and also the US. I think it's unlikely that there would be a recession that was as severe as the first one for a second time. 
Of course, economic data are jumping about all over the place at the moment. But yeah, I think, I mean, certainly if there's a second wave, a double dip recession can't be ruled out. Callum Williams, thank you. Thank you. And you can read Callum's full report in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer and subscribe for the best introductory offer wherever you are. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Next. The sound of scooters driving past and of ringing doorbells has become a common feature for lots of people under lockdown. Food delivery services such as Uber Eats or Deliveroo have become popular for takeaway meals. And now the sector is heating up. Uber is buying rival delivery service Postmates in an all-stock takeover worth $2.65 billion. Is this a sweet deal or will it leave a sour taste? Global lockdowns and closure of restaurants has really sent growth surging for these businesses. Tamsin Booth is our technology and business editor. So the US market, for instance, has been expanding over 100% year on year in terms of the value of, of orders. And you can see this the amazing growth rates for all of the companies, really. So Grubhub, one of the biggest American firms, is seeing 50% year on year revenue growth. Uber Eats, a subsidiary of the ride hailing company, 89% year on year growth. So the chief effect has just been to really turbocharge growth and get investors really back interested and and excited about the sector because of those growth rates. They had been getting a bit worried about whether profits would ever materialise. And the second, I guess, big effect is that you've had a real sort of flocking by restaurants, all kinds of restaurants, to food delivery services. So, of course, these companies are most known for kind of delivering fast food, pizza, burgers, that sort of thing. But now even the priciest restaurants are joining Michelin-starred restaurants, the really upscale sort. And recently, I just talked to Jose Aviez, who's a two Michelin star Portuguese chef. He just started using Uber Eats last week. So that means that there's really something for everyone in terms of what's on the menu. And that in turn expands the whole category. And how have investors been responding to this? Tell us a bit about the valuation of some of these delivery companies. Well, investors at the early part of this year had really started worrying about profitability. And so I think the growth has got them really excited again about the sector. And you've seen that some companies have been doing particularly well during the lockdown. So DoorDash, for instance, which is the market leader in the US, has seized a lot of market share away from its rivals and its value has soared. At the beginning of the year, it was trying to do an IPO and it was looking like it was going to be a, a bit of a, a bit of a struggle just because of concerns about profitability and also just worries that it wasn't really much of a digital company. It was sort of too much in the physical world, hence high costs, not so much profit. But DoorDash's valuation um, has just gone up from 13 billion to 16 billion. And the other companies have been doing really well. 
Just Eat Takeaway, which is a European veteran, um, its shares have been trading higher. Uber's share price has been holding up well, even though its ride-hailing business um, has really kind of evaporated in the last few months. So investors, I would say, have been really getting excited about these companies. Again, valuations have been surging. And clearly, profitability is is the big concern. Do you, have these companies found that lockdowns are a profitable affair? Well, the problem with the business model remains. I mean, it's very simple. It's just that the dollar value of food orders tends to be quite low relative to the cost of making the dish, paying the courier to go to your house, and of course, the overhead costs associated with these large companies. So Uber's boss, Dara Khosrowshahi, has has commented that no one's really making money in this business at all. Bernstein, a bank, reckons that Uber Eats is losing a dollar ten on average on every single order it delivers. So the fundamental issue with profits hasn't really gone away, um, even though obviously the, the surge in orders means that you know you can get closer to profitability. And you've got an additional dynamic here, which is that because investors have got back interested in the sector, the firms are back trying to win market share away from each other. So they're sort of flinging more subsidies at consumers again, and they're sort of battling each other for share, which takes a hit on profitability. Tell us more about Uber's thinking then with this deal with Postmates. Is it thinking that consolidation is is the answer to its lack of profitability? Yes, consolidation absolutely should be the answer in the long run to the very poor unit economics of food delivery. So it's a, it's a fantastic deal. It's definitely the right thing to buy Postmates, which is the, America's fourth largest player in food delivery. Uber tried to buy Grubhub earlier this year, but in the end, it went to Just Eat Takeaway, um, chiefly because of antitrust concerns. So if Uber couldn't get Grubhub, definitely the right thing to get Postmates. It takes out the smallest competitor and it gives Uber Eats just under a third market share in the US. But of course, Postmates isn't profitable either. So there's no guarantee that the deal is going to mean profits in this sector overall. It seems to me that customers, and I am one myself, will just have to start accepting higher prices. Yes, I think in the end, you'll end up having probably just two of these online delivery companies in each big city. And it's true that sort of antitrust might be an issue. But in the end, it's just inevitable that there will have to be consolidation and higher prices because these, you know, you just can't burn cash forever. So from consumers' point of view and from your point of view, Ratchner, I think that, you know, you just have to sort of enjoy the the free lunch buffet for now because it can't possibly last. Tamsin Booth, thank you. Thank you for having me. And finally, from one end of the food supply chain to the other. The meal delivered to your door by Uber is just one cog in a huge global food system. Predicting and understanding it is the only way to make sure there's enough food to go around. For example, take China. How much pork are they going to consume? So this is exactly the challenge we were solving, which is if you try and look for that today, you end up with a lot of conflicting information. Actually, the best data might not even be discovered through the traditional search engines because it's highly contextual information. And the best data about China comes in Mandarin, not English. Sarah Menka is the founder and CEO of Grow Intelligence. She uses masses of data to examine agricultural relationships and markets. This enables farmers and distributors to manage the global food system more efficiently. What we've 
done is we've built a product that takes very large disparate data sets that can come in any language, in any format, in a multitude of organizations, whether they're public institutions like national statistical agencies or trade organizations or private companies that report data and combine all that through a language that we've developed that allows us to connect the dots so that if you are looking for Chinese pork production today, you can find that data much faster. But more importantly, if you want to know what the future of Chinese pork production is, you're able to build very powerful predictive models in very short amounts of time to do that. How have your models held up over the past few months? How do you distinguish between sort of more normal price movements and those caused by the pandemic? There are generally two classes of predictive models that you work with. One class is supply side models. So you're forecasting what is the supply of this product going to be in this market? And the second class of problems is what is the demand for that product going to be? And usually in agriculture, a good number of the supply side challenges are actually linked to things like climate. And then on the demand side, it's obviously human behavior. And very rarely do you have both a supply shock and a demand shock at the same time, which is what this pandemic has brought upon us. And so our models have been very fast at adopting and finding new signals. But also what we did was very rapidly launch new models that work in the context of a pandemic. So this is models that were actually taking in large amounts of price information from around the world to start to detect when recoveries, for example, of economies are occurring. Like if you wanted to understand the reopening of China, because China was the first to reemerge out of the pandemic, you were looking at things like chicken prices, because a lot of poultry is mostly consumed in restaurants and in cafeterias. So places that were definitively shut down. And what you saw was a rapid decline in poultry prices as the country was shutting down and then almost a V-shaped recovery. And in the U.S. now, it's other products that are serving as that. And instead of a V-shaped recovery, what we're starting to see is what I'm calling the A-shaped reopening, which is you saw a rapid increase in the, in the price of grocery products as you had supply chains disrupted and meat plants shutting down. And with all that reopening now, you're starting to see a precipitous drop in the combined kind of basket of foods that we tend to buy from a supermarket. And so it's about finding, you know, new and adaptive ways to also model these markets. So it's not just about making the old models work. It's about creating new ones as well. And what about exchange rate? We saw the dollar strengthening a fair bit early on. I mean, some of that has unwound. How did that affect food markets? That is still a story to watch in most emerging economies because the precipitous kind of decline in the local currencies of a lot of emerging markets meant that the local price of a product basically went up by the percentage equivalent drop in the US dollar. So, you know, if you look at a place like Brazil, which is a big exporter of soybeans, but had a massive devaluation and, and depreciation in its currency over 25%, the local price of food went up by that 25% equivalent. Uh, Russia temporarily actually minimized the percentage of wheat that could be exported because the local price of wheat in rubles was getting very high as an export product. And so to me, you know, one of the very big kind of danger zones for countries in emerging markets that are net importers of calories is that the cost of imports will go up. So even if prices in U.S. dollar terms remained unchanged, 
you're paying X percentage higher that is directly related to your foreign currency reserves and your FX rates. There's been another threat to food security in parts of the world and perhaps relatively neglected compared with the pandemic. It's a terrible locust infestation in East Africa and parts of South Asia. How big a threat is this? And do you think it's comparable to COVID-19? It's it's one of the very unfortunate things in terms of timing. But, you know, locusts can prove to be a bigger threat in some of these countries than COVID-19 because locust infestations are essentially happening at exactly the same time as the growing season in a, in a lot of East African countries. And that, as you rightfully say, now in South Asia. So both Pakistan and parts of northern India are being impacted by locusts. This to me is a much greater threat to poor and vulnerable populations because, you know, where you're dealing with a world of subsistence farmers that were basically eating what they produced, that's now under threat. Desert locusts, which is a specific species of locusts that are currently spreading around the world today, are particularly vicious when it comes to how much crop they consume. They consume their body weights worth of food a day. And as COVID-19 hit, more and more countries were being tighter with their finances and their ability to kind of step in and help. So I think it's proving to be a much bigger challenge than what most imagined. People keep talking about a new normal, mitigating some of the risks while sort of ensuring that day-to-day functioning carries on. From your perspective, what would a new normal look like for a more resilient food chain? There's one big thing we haven't talked about, which is also this happening in the face of climate change, which still hasn't left us yet. And one of the things about locusts that's little known is actually it's all linked to climate and climate patterns. The spread is linked exactly to things like soil moisture and amount of rainfall and how they breed. And just so many things happened this year that were not according to the timelines that were supposed to happen. So, for example, it rained way more than it ever did in the month of March for the last 20 years in East Africa. It actually got in the way of controlling the locust breeding. And so for me, building our new normal and our resilient supply chains is also about diversification. I think one of the things that COVID-19 taught us was in an effort to be as efficient as possible, we created highly concentrated supply chains whose vulnerabilities were exposed. And so to me, this new normal is about how do we have distributed supply chains that will A, help us be resilient towards any other pandemic that might, this is not going to be the last one we're ever going to have as a society, but actually resilient supply chains for climate change is also about diversification. So how do we diversify supply chains, but still continue to kind of live in a world where food can be affordable to all? It's a big challenge, but I think it's what we're going to have to figure out. Sarah Menka, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Rashna. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Sharnbog. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.